0: And I think perhaps it would be useful if we now move into the third area I wanted to talk to you about, the area of hermeneutics. When you survey church history, it very quickly becomes evident that different periods have focused on different aspects of Christian truth. You know how back in the third and fourth centuries, the church had to work out its Christology... And then there were the Trinitarian controversies. In the 16th century, there was the doctrine of salvation as distinct from human merit. Over the last two centuries, the the focus has been on the Bible, its authority. And in perhaps the last 20 years, the most vexing problem in that whole area is that of hermeneutics the theory of biblical interpretation, or to put it the other way round, the process by which the Bible speaks to us. You see, a person could in principle hold to inerrancy and to the authority of the Bible and still, by the way he reads and interprets it, reject much of its fundamental teaching. It's not a new problem totally, Uh, problems of hermeneutics have been around for ages, particularly uh, in the medieval period and earlier there was the problem of allegorization. What do you do with a book like Esther? Uh, How many people felt very uncomfortable, the name of God wasn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. So they would allegorize it and Esther would represent the church and Ahasuerus would represent Christ and Mordecai the Holy Spirit, and I hope I'm not giving MD any ideas. (laughs) Um, But it was a way of grappling, how does this book speak to us? And we've got to make sure that we're not making the assumptions of our own culture and modern philosophy the standard by which we interpret the Bible. You can see that in the hermeneutical approach known as demythologizing. It says modern scientific advance is such that people nowadays no longer believe in miracles. And modern man can no longer credit the supernaturalism of the Bible. So we've got to look at it and interpret it a different way. And they assign a, a mythical value to miracles such as the virgin birth and the resurrection. They didn't happen, but they're stories that convey profound underlying religious truth. They're not arguing over canon. They're not arguing over text. They'll use any translation you want, but they'll interpret what they've got in such a way that what you thought God's word was teaching doesn't seem to be there anymore. Indeed, Scripture itself gives us a challenge in this. Remember how Luke closes his gospel with the story of Cleopas and his companion who were traveling to Emmaus. And Jesus joined them and asked them, why are you so sad? And they told him what had been happening. And they said, we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus upbraided them and said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, Cleopas and his companions, companion thought they were in the know. It was Jesus, who as a stranger didn't understand what had been going on. He hadn't heard about it, obviously. And they had the scriptures. No problem. They were, were well versed, as Orthodox Jews were, in the scriptures of the Old Testament. But their hermeneutical procedures had failed them. They didn't understand that they were talking. The scriptures had been talking about Jesus. They'd seen all that Jesus had said and done. And still, he says, they were foolish because they hadn't been able to interpret what he'd said and done in the right way. And so Jesus taught them from the scripture the right way to approach scripture and to understand himself. And it's also useful to notice how often Jesus said all Scripture, all the prophets, or Luke rather, uh, brings that out in commenting on what what Christ did. See, there's a brand of modern theology. It's not so popular in academic circles as it was, but it's still very popular uh, in those who have been taught 20 years ago in those academic circles. That focuses on revelation is to be found in the action of God. Revelation of God's redemption is to be found in God's saving acts. God's communicated with man. He's shown himself to be the savior of sinners, but he's done so in deeds, not in words. He is the God who acts. And of course, the motivation that so often leads to the adoption of that sort of theology is the desire to get out from under the word of God. Leaves you with a gospel to preach. You've got a God who acts and a God who saves but the Bible's left as a fallible human document. And God did mighty acts, the exodus, the return from the exile, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And they say you approach the Bible in the same way as you listen to someone preaching a sermon. You can make mistakes, but the message, the truth that he's witnessing to has still occurred, and the message about it can still have an impact but the revelation of god indeed and in act is not sufficient god did intervene in history no doubt about it but god's action needs to be rightly interpreted when the israelites had crossed the red sea they could have stood on the other shore and said oh how Fortunate we were that that happened just at the right moment. What a lucky chance it was that we got through there. Unless the interpretative word had come to channel their thoughts in the right direction. You can stand at the cross, you can stare at the empty tomb, but they don't tell you anything. Even though God mightily revealed himself there, the sinner could stand and stare and stare and never be able to work out what it was that had happened. Scriptural concept of revelation doesn't deny that God's acting, but it emphasizes his revelation in word. And when we come to interpret that, we've got to adopt the scriptural model for interpreting it. There are three different models that have been identified. There's what can be called the subjective model. And this is very much a child of the philosophy of the Enlightenment. You know how the Enlightenment emphasized the autonomy of human reason, emphasized man's ability to work things out, to understand things. And the subjective model of biblical interpretation emphasizes very much the reader's contribution to understanding the text. You come to a portion of scripture and you say, what does this mean to you? Perhaps you've heard of that sort of Bible study where everybody gets out their Bible and they all say, this means this to me and this means this to me and you suddenly realize you've got about as many views of what this means as there are people sitting around in a circle and they say, oh, well, that's fine. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. Isn't that great? At a more sophisticated level, the subjective model saying that preconceptions don't just occur in our understanding of things, but they're in fact essential. And several recent theological movements deliberately read the Old Testament with a subjective model. They read the New Testament too, but it's sometimes clearer in the Old Testament. Thinking of liberation theology. You come to the Exodus. You read the narratives of the Exodus. And you get out of them what you wanted in the first place because you see they are a model for throwing off the oppressor, giving the underdog a chance, and you can work out a Marxist ideology. And they say that's perfectly legitimate use of scripture. They say what matters is what I can get out of the text. There's no real objective meaning. You understand what's there in terms of what you bring to it, and interpretation rapidly becomes more an opportunity to expound the beliefs that we had in the first place than to expound the text. Dare I mention feminist theology does the same thing. You come with a set of preconceptions and you read out of the text what you're reading in in the first place. The focus in modern hermeneutics has been on the role of the reader, on the role of the individual. The text is distant, the text is in the past, and what matters is what comes back to me when I project my ideas and my questions to the text, what I receive back. The other model is the objective model which says, there is the text and it's fixed. Let the text speak to me. And it often leads to the development of certain exegetical rules for understanding scripture. Ask this sort of question, do this sort of thing. It's a far healthier approach, but it often leads to unnoticed prejudices going unchallenged. You know, the sort of person who says, oh, I have no confession but the Bible. Uh, And that sounds great until you realize that they think the Bible is just what they've understood it to mean and don't allow for the fact that others uh, may have understood it differently. There's many, particularly in America, it seems to be the case, there's many sort of small Bible colleges that say, we don't have a confession our confession is the Bible. And then someone from a different background comes along and says, but that's not what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And they suddenly realize that uh, the Bible, what the Bible says depends to a certain extent on how we've interpreted it. And because of that, I want to suggest that the soundest model for in approaching interpretation of Scripture is what can be called the authority dialogue model. It's We're coming as individuals now to the Bible and the Bible is authoritative. We recognize that we come with our own questions, with our own problems, with our own expectations. But we're coming recognizing that what we are going to learn isn't just going to be what we ourselves bring, we are going to, we're expecting to be given an understanding that goes well beyond our own ideas. It's like speaking to someone with authority. I was going to say it's like speaking to a headmaster, it's like speaking to a a lawyer, a judge. It's a situation where our perception of the situation can be radically challenged and challenged in a way that we can't evade. Perhaps that doesn't apply to headmasters nowadays. When we come to read scripture, we're not to read our preconceptions into it. We've got to come with an openness so that we can hear what it has to say to us we've got to come with a preparedness to submit to the authority of Scripture. You see, the subjective model tends to make us equal with Scripture by bringing the authority of Scripture down to our level. It's what the reader can find, it's what the reader can bring, it's what the reader wants to understand that's the ultimate level of interpretation. The objective model tends to go the other way. It tends to take the understanding that we have of Scripture and uh, make it level with Scripture ourself, itself. Uh, we have to avoid identifying our interpretations with the text. We have rather to recognize that the text is absolute and there. Uh, we are coming with ideas that may be wrong. We're coming with questions of our own day and age. But we're going to conduct a conversation in which we expect to have. Our initial starting point changed. There's a phrase that's often used in these sorts of discussions when it talks about the hermeneutical circle. It's an unfortunate phrase. Many people are now avoiding it. It seems to suggest the idea that there's the scriptures and there's the individual. You come with a question to scripture, you read scripture, you get an answer back, and you're going round and round rather purposelessly. The model that helps us understand what's going on as we try to ungrapple with Scripture, a better model, is that of a spiral. A spiral with an ever-decreasing radius. We come with our question, our preconception. We listen to what Scripture says to us, and we get our views modified, our perceptions, preconceptions are molded towards the norm of Scripture's own standards. We don't get there in a one It's an ongoing process as we interact with Scripture and recognize its authority. Our views are molded, we come back with other questions, and we're getting closer and closer to the truth. That getting closer, that spiraling in, in a sort of vortex movement towards the truth, is something that is generated, is something that's carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is ultimately the Spirit who uses many different resources to help us in the process of getting clearer and closer to what Scripture is saying. And we can come. We may well come with scientific theories of our own day. We may well come with ideas that have reached us from the environment in which we live. But as we come with them to Scripture, we are not to take our ideas as the absolute to which we're going to pull Scripture to conform. It's rather the case that we allow Scripture to modify our understanding of what is in, in those ideas. We dare not read the Bible apart from our position in the midst of a spiritual battle. We need the help of the divine author to understand Scripture correctly. And we need to understand the Bible so that we can carry out the orders that are there. And I want to bring this thought to you because I think it's one of the tendencies that's helped weaken the evangelical position. We need to understand the Bible with the help of the Christian community that's engaged on the same task. There are many gifts Christ's given to his church, And we need the help of others where our own gifts are deficient. And that applies to the community of the past as well as the present community of believers. One of the greatest biases of this age is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Only what's been written in the last ten years is worth reading. It's the standard test in academic circles. Drawing up a book list, drop off the old ones, focus on the most recent. Of course, it comes from the scientific model. And that's perhaps influenced uh, our our perception of things. Where what's at the forefront of research is what you want to know about. Uh, Reading research of 20 or 30 years ago, although it may not always be as irrelevant as is supposed, but... It's often not what's engaged in. And that's certainly not true in spiritual matters. The church needs the resources of the past and present as it seeks to engage in interpreting God's word. There's the benefit of reading and applying scripture in terms of the community of faith. I'm I'm not trying to deny the right of private judgment. We're all answerable to God for what we make of his book, We're all answerable to God for how we respond to what he says to us in his book. But when it comes to understanding it, then we have to recognize uh, that uh, the Christian community as a whole has much to say to us, as much that it can give to help us on the way. And again, I would emphasize that we must be careful That we don't give in at the precise point where the challenge of the world comes. This was brought home to me even more recently when I've been studying various ways of interpreting the early chapters of Genesis. And I came across those who say, We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe in uh, the infallibility of Scripture. But Genesis 1 is really just an elaborate parable. Just as when you read Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, you don't say, I wonder what the sower's name was. I, I wonder which field this occurred in. So they say, if you look at Genesis 1, it's a very elaborately constructed uh, literary work And if we do justice to that, we see that we're asking the wrong sorts of questions of it. If we ask, when did this occur? How did this occur? It's rather we should come and interpret it with sensitivity towards its literary genre and see that it's just trying to affirm that God is the creator of all things without giving us a blow-by-blow account through various days. You would never have arrived, I would venture to suggest, at that interpretation had it not been for the pressure of modern scientific community. It is not an interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis that the text itself suggests. And so when we're dealing with this area of hermeneutics of interpretation, we've got to be prepared, all right, it's an approach, and we take it to the word. And we ask, is it reasonable to assume that this is what was originally there? As we approach the word of God and try to interpret it, the first thing that we have to try and uh, understand is its original meaning. And a very good test, I find, for many of these things is to say, now, could Moses have possibly been trying to convey that meaning or something related to that meaning, to the Israelites when he first presented this to them. And we can readily see that what we've done, I would argue, in such an approach, is read our modern concern into Scripture in such a way that we're not doing justice to the truth of what Scripture has said in the first place. You see, there's a doctrine of the perspicacity of Scripture. Which simply means that the Bible is clear enough to be understood. There are difficulties, yes, but there's more than enough to keep us right. It's a story, I think it was told about Moody, who was once asked by a woman, what will I do about all the hard things that I can't understand in Scripture? first she thought he hadn't really heard her correctly, because his answer was, Madam, have you ever eaten chicken? (laughs) And a bit nonplussed, she said, yes. He said, what did you do with the bones? And she said, I put them to the side of my plate. Well, he said, just you do the same with scripture. You put the difficulties to the side of the plate, and you'll find that there's more than enough food for you to digest in the rest of it. And that's really what the doctrine of perspicacity or perspicuity is concerned with. There's more than enough to be getting on with apart from the difficulties. Countless people without advanced education or knowledge of the original languages have read the Bible with understanding and profit. There are things that are hard to be understood. There are things that require diligent study and we all need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to attain right knowledge and true faith. But in all the things necessary to salvation, they are sufficiently plain to be understood. And the ultimate source of our understanding is the, is the witness of the Holy Spirit. The evidence is there, and the reality of the evidence is one thing. The power to perceive it is quite another. Another. It's no objection to the brightness of the sun if the blind can't see. And when we come and listen to these modern interpretations, these modern approaches, becoming ever more popular in evangelical circles, we've got to come back to the perspicuity of Scripture over the generations I venture to suggest that we're not going to find some marvellous new technique for understanding Scripture that hasn't been available to the church before. I venture to suggest that the problem so often is that we're just not prepared to accept what Scripture says. The problem is that we are very much aware of the world around us, and when the world's view conflicts with our view, we feel well, let's see how far we can go so as to avoid a problem, so as to avoid giving offence. I have been intrigued uh, by the the number of times uh, that the objections that the world brings uh, get so quickly outmoded. There's the story told that the French Academy of Science in 1871 once listed a 100 objections to the truth of Scripture in the light of modern knowledge. And the person who wrote this story, I'm afraid they didn't list the hundred things for me. And if anybody ever comes across that list of a hundred things, I'd be very interested to see what they were. But he said, having looked at them, I find that not one of them is now believed by those people of his own day, it was about the 1930s. It's a mistake to treat modern science as absolute. Modern scientists keep falling into that mistake. But modern science is not absolute. And it's a mistake to treat archaeology as absolute. Uh, It's surprising. People said for ages, the dates of the kings in the Old Testament are a hopeless mess. They're all over the place. You can't reconcile one to the other. And yet, it's been done. It's been done in a way that has abundantly verified the accuracy of Scripture. People often nowadays say, when was this exodus? Why can't you find traces of it in Egyptian history? And yet I was reading a book produced by people not within the evangelical viewpoint, not of a Christian viewpoint at all, saying that many of these things are vastly uh, in error because the dating of the ancient world has been consistently... uh, Miscalculated throughout the whole of this century. What's been taught as the dates, the current dates for um, ancient Egypt or ancient Greece uh, from a period before 800 BC are nothing like the a certain or engraven in stone as uh, those who put them across in uh, university classes uh, tend to think. So that we have therefore the problem that we're aware of the dogmatic nature of the assertions of science we're aware of the dogmatic nature of the assertions of ancient history and if we come and so allow them to channel our preconceptions we can start a long way off from what scripture's saying and it makes it a much more difficult task uh, to appreciate, assimilate, base our lives on the message of Scripture. But if we come and allow Scripture to influence our thinking, we can get closer, provided we, have always to, we are always on our guard. Now, of course, there is the problem, and I think I mentioned this way back when we started. If Scripture is so clear, and if scripture can um, modify our understanding if we interact with it, why is it that there is a diversity of scriptural interpretation uh, um, in the community that interacts with it most, the church? And this, can all, this is a source of, of weakness. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But I think we've got to, first of all, not overstate the problem. There are many truths that are held in common. Let's confine ourselves to the evangelical community. There are many truths. We often are so aware of the differences that we forget uh, to set out clearly that which is shared. Looking at a gathering like this, I suspect that there are many differences that I could very readily stir up by mentioning two or three things. Um, But yet, I would also feel that it would be fair to say that there's a great many things that are common. Modern approaches to Scripture tend to focus unduly on differences. Redaction criticism, biblical theology uh, has frequently emphasised what one scripture writer says that's a little bit different from another. And undoubtedly there are differences in verbal expression and style. But it's not the case that things that are said in different ways at different times by different writers are different in substance. Although the vocabulary may not be the same, the logical implications of what Paul says and what John says and what the writer to the Hebrews says the logical implications are the same. Their implications for doctrine and in an the area of Christian living are consistent. The church may have a number of matters uh, which are still not resolved. There may be a number of matters uh, that are not going to be resolved uh, before we have them finally and conclusively resolved. But it is the case that there is a great deal that one who comes and is prepared to be submissive to scripture can enter into agreement with with one another. In hermeneutical approach, it is very useful to distinguish between meaning and application. Different people in many different situations over the centuries, have found the same scripture passage bringing them illumination from God. Say Psalm 23. It's been applied in many different human contexts. Its meaning has stayed the same throughout. Its meaning was fixed as soon as the David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the psalm. To find out that meaning, we in the first instance have to try as best we can to get ourselves back to where David was. We have to use the best techniques we can to understand the words that David used, to fit David's particular era into the progressive revelation of God so that we are aware of what David knew uh, from what had been revealed before his day so that we can fit what David says into a variety of contexts. We try to establish the meaning of Scripture way back then. But God's Word is not historically bound the meaning was fixed once it was written down, but its relevance, its application can be worked out in our ever-changing situations. The basic principles, the basic truths regarding God, the basic truths regarding God's care for his people as the shepherd, the basic truths for regarding God's care of those who are in the valley of the shadow of death. These truths can be applied, can be made relevant in a vast variety of subsequent situations. The applications vary, but the truth remains the same. It's also the case that the doctrine of inspiration requires us to adhere to a principle of harmony, in scripture and that can also check discrepant interpretations our current generation very much emphasizes that the bible is human and perhaps that's a necessary corrective to what's been said in the past the humanness of scripture but we should never think of scripture as being only or merely human scripture The 66 books have a unity because they're also the product of a single divine mind. And therefore we should ever strive to interpret Scripture in such a way that it is not in conflict with another passage. Scripture should be interpreted by Scripture. The reformer's slogan was just that. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Its sense is not manifold but one and must be searched and made known by other places that speak more clearly in Scripture. And we shouldn't get into the practice, and this is very common in modern approaches, of setting one Scripture against another. Matthew says this, Luke says that. They're not using the same words, and therefore there's a tension between them. I came across a reference in one of Packer's writings to Anglican Article 20, which I otherwise wouldn't have known about, uh, which forbids the church so to expound one place of Scripture, that it be repugnant to another. And that is a very sound, hermeneutical, exegetical principle. It is to be expected that the teaching of the God of truth will prove to be consistent with itself. And therefore, when we find that which is difficult, uh, that, which we don't f- that which is uh, too true, two passages of Scripture which we can't immediately see how they fit together, uh, we must be careful uh, to proceed in such a way that we're not going to set Scripture over against itself. Application, comprehension, shouldn't be confused with interpretation. Once we've understood what the scriptures said in their context, then we can apply them. Then we can use them in our daily living. It's something that there is no barrier to. There is something that is because of the unchangeable consistency of God we can argue from what he has said and done in the past right into the very situation of our own living day by day we can argue from the unchangeableness of God's standards into the situations of our own day we can argue from particular instances say of Christ's compassion to the thief on the cross or, or to Thomas in his difficulties, in his doubts to how God and Christ speak to us similarly placed today there are universal principles of God's will and because he doesn't change our hermeneutic, our interpretation must ever be to seek to bring them into the modern situation and in doing that we have to recognize that we're not where David was we're not precisely where Thomas was We have to make adjustment, and that's why interpretation, hermeneutics, is is an art form rather than a science. There are no strict rules that can be laid down, although there are useful guidelines. We have to adjust for the fact that God's revelation is progressive. And therefore now, in the age when Scripture is complete, we can look back and see things far more clearly, perhaps, uh, than we're seen In the Old Testament, not seeing different things, the same things, but more clearly. We have to recognize that there are cultural changes. I was saying to someone in the break, um, greet one another with a holy kiss. How does your hermeneutic of New Testament cope with that? As distinct uh, from the way in which you might wish to interpret passages Uh, dealing with uh, women keeping silent or women not having positions of authority. How is it that you can apply the same approach to the one passage and the other and perhaps arrive at different conclusions? Well, I think in those cases it's relatively easy because Paul, in talking about the position of women in the church, doesn't base his argument on anything that's specifically cultural. He bases it on... Genesis one to three And that's something that says to us, "This argument cannot be culturally relativized. It is something uh, that is universal. Whereas greet one another with an holy kiss uh, seems to be an expression of the normal mode of greeting in a specific culture, and it is not based in the scripture on uh, a specific um, universal perception and therefore presumably it is permissible uh, to engage in updating that into, is it the warm handshake? I don't know. Perhaps it's changing. But we have to look at the specifics of the situation and with sensitivity to the total revelation of scripture, say, yes, there may very well be elements there that are culturally bound, that are an expression of the way things were done thousands of years ago. And to take the principle that's embodied in them and bring them into a modern, the corresponding modern setting. Need for... Adjustment, therefore, to allow for the progressiveness of revelation, for the cultural embodiment of Scripture, and also for the personal situation. Uh, Words that are spoken in a particular context in Scripture uh, needn't necessarily apply to everyone thereafter. Advice that's given to a king in ancient Israel as king doesn't necessarily apply, it doesn't necessarily have any immediate relevance to someone who's not in a position of authority, a similar position of authority. We need to adjust for our personal circumstances. But even so, these adjustments are relatively minor in comparison with the basic hermeneutical principles that because God is the same, because people are the same, and because God's people are in the same relationship with him, over the centuries. Uh, we can come with our questions, or with our problems, posing what we want to pose to Scripture, and with an openness and a willingness to hear God speaking in it, we can have our ideas changed and transformed and molded so that we come closer in our understanding to the message of Scripture. It's a challenge that God's given the t- church task before it in each and every age, because the questions keep changing. It's a challenge so that we don't uh, think we've ever arrived. We're always like Paul, pressing towards the mark. We're always like Paul, uh, seeking to understand the wisdom that is the wisdom of Christ, so that our living may be ever more God-honoring as it gets closer to the standards that he has supplied. I want to stop there. And I'm now prepared to take questions because I'm sure a discussion on many of these things will raise many matters that I ought to have spoken about. Yes, I realise that. (laughs) Steve?
1: My question is that um, if there are problems with the use of the word evangelical now because within uh, those communities that would call themselves evangelical, they're great... A variety of positions on the Bible and, and there are increasingly those who use the word who cannot really be thought of in terms of what the word used to mean. Wouldn't it perhaps be better to uh, revise our use of the term It seems to me that evangelical increasingly is more and more liberal. And, and you've, you've more or less admitted that. What do you think of the idea of perhaps uh, dropping the use of the term? Because yeah, but in, in actual fact, I feel now to use the term evangelical is to give the wrong impression to many people mm-hmm. about actually what I believe.
0: What do you use instead?
1: Well, it's a problem. I, I'm, I'm not saying I've got an equivalent no. to replace mm-hmm. it with. I, I haven't, but I do avoid using the word evangelical to describe myself for a, a variety of reasons, one of which you've yep.
0: made. Well, I, I quite agree. Uh, when words are changing their meaning, there's always a time when some people want to battle for the old meaning. I mean, <clears throat> I've got a colleague who likes to battle for, I'm a charismatic, and he doesn't mean what anybody else means by it. I, I remember an old minister uh, who always liked to say, I'm a Catholic. Boy, that caused you problems in Glasgow. Um, <laughs> words have changed their meanings. And yes, there comes a time when you've got to get a new term for clarity. That's what happened I think with the word inerrancy. You'll not find inerrancy as such in discussions before relatively recently. Infallibility did, inspiration did, and increasingly the content that was being read into infallibility was not what was originally intended to be expressed by the word, and so people have gone over to talking about the inerrancy of scripture. So it's a relatively, it, well, it's history, the word's been used for a, since about 1832, I think. But it's only become more common, more recently. For that very purpose, words have to communicate, and if you're defining, if you're trying to identify, you want to do it as clearly as possible. My problem's your problem. I haven't got another word. Well, I have, but it's too narrow. I've got lots of other um, words that have not yet been so totally debased, uh, but uh, I'm not going to... I haven't got one that says broad. Well, what,
1: would you, what would you say, then, if somebody said, well, define what you mean when you say you're a Christian? What, what does that mean to you? There are many different views of what Christianity is. There are people, what do you mean? Like, how would you actually answer that question without using the word evangelical?
0: I tend to use... A of words? Yeah, I would probably use a variety of words, but the first word that comes to my mind, and I think it slipped in two or three times, is reformed. Yes. I, I like the word reformed. Uh, but I can't use it talking to Dutchmen, <laughs> <laughs> because they don't mean by it what I mean by it. But reformed is helpful. I mean, Protestants obviously far too broad; it's no, no use at all now. Uh, reformed gets into the right area, and then if you press me a bit more, I want to bring in the word covenant, but that causes problems with quite a number of other people. But reformed is quite a broad, uh, a good broad term. Um,
1: When I was a student, we were were, Christian Union people. Mm -hmm. Such like were always called fundamentalists, which it didn't last
0: very long, I don't think, but it was certainly what we were called. Fundamentalist is an American word, and what it originally no, what it originally stood for was quite good, but fundamentalism took a turning in the early thirties, I think it was. Uh, in, in America uh, where it almost became anti-intellectual and fundamentalist nowadays has got the overtones of I'm not prepared to listen to reason I've got a view and that's it whereas reformed, Calvinistic well, that have got overtones of being prepared to acknowledge that you can talk about things
1: I think that's why it didn't last
0: oh yes I mean, to call someone a fundamentalist is generally to be pejorative. You're not normally saying something nice about them.
1: Things are opening up now. I can see that. uh, There's Brian, first of all, at the back there. I was advancing
0: the view for being a fundamentalist in the the good sense. Mm -hmm. My listeners said, well,
1: okay, then, what are the fundamentals? I was about to present a basket full of doctrines when I thought, no, it's the authority of scriptures when I finished, I felt a little uncomfortable. Was I saying, therefore, that the doctrine of the Atonement, the Trinity, were negotiable? Can you comment on that?
0: Oh, no, I don't think you were. Uh, when you're... Uh, perhaps to say the doctrine of scriptures is putting it off on the wrong line. It's the scriptures that are non-negotiable. And that includes their content. Um, and to my mind, uh, scriptures teach very clearly uh, about uh, Christ, about atonement. Uh, I think myself that if, particularly in the situation of, of witnessing to people who've got very confused ideas about what Christianity is about, I think it is very useful as soon as possible to get them into contact with the Bible, because I am convinced not just that the Bible is a witness to what God has said, it is a means that God currently uses and is blessed by the Spirit to challenge our spiritual preconceptions and our spiritual uh, situation. And I think you're perfectly right. If somebody comes and says, you know, what is it that makes a Christian a Christian? What is it that a Christian stands for? To say the truth of the Bible. And there it is, read it and see. Seems to me to be a very sound way to go about things. Assuming that it's something that's going to go on, you know, it's not just a one-off relationship with somebody for a few minutes on a doorstep or something, but someone that you know and you're going to be able to interact with over a period of time.
1: Yes, I'm going to draw a parallel between another term, which is born again, which which is another uh, term that's in a sense been debased but, or altered at any rate. But I would have thought a simple term would be simply Bible-believing.
0: Well, yes, but they also will say they're Bible-believing.
1: Well, they don't tell
0: the debate around... Oh, don't, yes, but yeah. is it a label? I mean, if... if you Suppose somebody, an unbeliever, comes up to two professing Christians, you know, and you try to explain. And you say, well, oh, I'm Bible-believing. Oh, I'm Bible-believing. I, I believe this. I-, I don't. You know, it doesn't... Um, it, that, that, it's that very area, if you had said Bible-believing 60, 70 years ago, it would have been very helpful because the the, the, the problem of... Hermeneutical different hermeneutical approaches trying to say we accept the text but we'll modify the interpretation that wasn't around so much, uh, but now yes it's, it's it's a useful thing to say, uh, but it's not a unique label. Yes, Margaret. It's
1: a very simple question, very simple, but. Um, how do you feel about the concept of the use of the Living Bible? It's being used as a handout to non Christians because it's in a language they can understand. But I do understand there are various parts of it that are a little bit querulous in the mind someone like yourself who researches in practice. So I'd like a little clarification on how happy one
0: should be into that. Yes, well, this brings us into the question of translations. And I think it's fair to say that different translations were made with different purposes in view, uh, For instance, the Good News Bible was translated in the first place with a view to people whose language whose English was as a second language, particularly West African Christians. And in that context, it's a useful translation, but I personally get very worried with the Good News Bible, never mind the Living Bible, if it becomes the staple diet of a believer. Uh, Every, well, every, is that going too far? Yes, I think we would have to accept the Jehovah's Witnesses and some other things. But most Bible translations that are in in the sort of general run of translations have God's truth in them, are an expression of God's truth. Perhaps not the best, but can be blessed by God and used by him. But I do worry when I see those who should be spiritually more mature using a translation that was intended for those who were completely ignorant of spiritual things in the first place. And I think we're now living in a generation where it's good that we can in fact use more than one translation. Uh, th- there are some translations that are far better for individual Bible study than perhaps they are for, for public reading of Scripture. Uh, there are a variety. I am not at all happy with the Living Bible. Uh, I, I wouldn't care to use it myself. Uh, I have hesitancy. Uh, but I, I wouldn't immediately say to somebody at whom I saw reading it, you know, this is the truth, get rid of that one. Uh, I know many who have used it and profited by it. But I think it's the case uh, that one would always be wanting to say, well, here is something better. Uh, Move on.
1: I was encouraged when you reminded us we need a modern version to, to constantly bring to each generation the word of God in a language which is relevant. Do you think that an implication of that is that perhaps in the public worship The authorised version is not
0: the best choice. The policy of wisdom is to say you have to consider the specific situation. Um, One of the problems with the authorised version was that it was so good. Now, let's be quite clear about that. One of the problems was that the church forgot, was able to forget for centuries the need to have the scripture in the language of the ordinary people. Like linguistic change was going on, perhaps it wasn't going on so rapidly as it has been in recent centuries, but the church wasn't facing up to the problem and hadn't developed the mechanism for dealing with it. I am increasingly hesitant uh, about the value of the authorised version, Uh it's certainly lost all value, in my opinion, in outreach situations. Uh, it's not, th- you just, it's, it's to make scripture laughed at, uh, to present it. I'd far rather be presenting the living Bible. Um, that sort of situation, it is gone. It's, it's, it's totally putting your head in the sand to think that it's the language of the people that you're talking to. Uh, in a church situation, you've got to look and see who's there. People who've been brought up on the authorized version, I, mean, I include myself amongst them. If I'm trying to work out a scriptural quotation, it's the authorized version I'm going for, and then I'll look back from there. Uh, people who've been brought up in uh, using a certain version, it's become the version that they think in, the version they pray in, the version they meditate in. I would be very hesitant to say to them, you know, we're not going to use that. But generally, they are the more advanced more mature Christians, and they're the very ones who in a group are concerned with the need to communicate with those who are less advanced in the faith or those who are not in the faith at all. And it is often the case that they are prepared, yes, to sacrifice something that's meant a lot to them over the years, because they feel, and rightly I would think, that another version will Equip the church, the congregation, the fellowship better for its task of witnessing it to those who are around. But it's. You, you can't just walk into a situation and say, right, no more authorised versions. Um, th- 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 that's just not on. But you can see, I mean, just look at the sales. The authorised version is on the way out uh, and we will go. There's no two ways about it. Well, I mean, it's great to be here today and being reinforced in your, your roots and things like that, but outside there in the world it's
1: very different. And it, it's the influence of the world and the subtlety of it all. What, in your opinion, is, or can you give us some idea, of what are the most
0: dangerous emphases or influences that we could be consciously or subconsciously be taking on board as conservative, reformed evangelicals? it's a big question let me try and orient my thinking first of all I think that the biggest problem, this is ones that we've taken on board, that we're influenced by subtly without perhaps being aware of it ourselves is the scientific model the scientific thinking of our age Uh, Now, don't get me wrong, science as such is neutral. Science properly defined is looking at God's creation and seeing what is there. Uh, Perhaps I ought to say the sort of scientism, the the aura that attaches to the, the pronouncements of the scientist or the technologist in areas that are not really within their sphere of professional competence, the sort of philosophy that they bring, and the the reading, It's the subtlety uh, with which scientific models uh, affect our thinking. Um, I, I mentioned I was speaking uh, one instance of this, uh, the sort of, if it hasn't been written in the last ten years, it's not up to scratch and shouldn't be worried about. That, I think, has undermined whole theological faculties and seminaries. When that sort of thinking gets in, And you start students off with what's been published since 1975, uh, when the treasure and the wealth of the church is over the centuries. And especially in the area of spiritual things, because man's human nature hasn't changed. It's not as if we're at the forefront of understanding man's spiritual nature nowadays. We're well back from that. The generations of the past have much to teach us. It affects us in the respect that is given to problems. You know, ever seen an evangelical minister shaping up to the question, were there dinosaurs? Well, Jim, laughed, laugh, but it, it's the sort of question that if you're unprepared and you sort of go into... A Sunday school class, you know, and where they've no inhibitions and say, any questions, you know, and you expect to get asked simple little questions, and they say, oh, "Where were there ever dinosaurs? And where do you come? Where did dinosaurs come from?" Um, and people can get themselves tied in knots over that. And I think that shows the extent to which we haven't done our thinking thoroughly in a, quite a number of these areas. Um, there are other Influences, they're not so much at the doctrinal level. The the main influence uh, that's weakening the church at other practical levels is is the sheer influence of materialism. Um, The Christian church in Britain is generally comfortably well off and doesn't wish that to be disturbed. And projects, giving, congregational action, are all shaped with an understanding that will not do too much uh, that's going to undermine our comfortable existence. Um, I think it's the case that if one looks for ages and people of great piety, they generally haven't been amongst the most comfortably well-off. I'm not saying absolutely, but piety springs from a background where we're terribly aware of our reliance on God. And we can very readily become less aware of that the more affluent we are. So that on the other non doctrinal side in terms of the action and the health of the Christian community, I I don't think that we nowadays really are evangelicals, if I can use the word, reformed. I'll use it even more of them. We're generating, say, the number of men or women prepared to become missionaries. The number of people prepared to uh, engage, even in our own country, in outreach activities. Um, I may be wrong. Correct me if I am. But take some simple test. A I'm, I'm number of people who move house in a year. Uh, generally, that's decided on where the job is, where you'll feel happiest, where the nicest housing is. And then you look around and see if there's a church or fellowship nearby. And sometimes you find it isn't, and you end up travelling a terrific number of miles. I'm not saying that that's inevitably, but it's, I think that's an indicator of this the sort of inverted priorities. I'm not saying they don't have a place, but they're upside down. Uh, that's really weakening uh, our action nowadays. There are many people who say they're evangelical or reformed, and have a very vague idea of Christian truth. Their idea of Christianity is more in terms of a good feeling or in terms of it's nice or it's in terms of where I am uh, and like to be, what I like to be in. And therefore, when there's an assault made, when there's a challenge made, what do you believe? Where do you stand? Why is this so? Or even... Not even the direct challenge. The direct challenge generally sends people worried. Let's find out what I really should be believing. It's the indirect challenge. It's the challenge of working in a workplace where there's certain practices going on and you aren't sufficiently sensitive to... Sensitised in your own thinking to say, I should be challenging these by Christian standards. You just take them on board. Uh, That weakness, doctrinal weakness is undoubtedly a rampant. Uh, although I think it would be fair to say, rampant, yes, but I think there's a, it's not as bad as it was. There's a lot more people interested in Christian teaching. If you go by the number of books that are sold, and then you take away the ones that are not really saying anything, there's still a lot of solid literature being sold, much more so than there was... A while back, I think that it's helpful, and and in you know the, this sort of program that you're engaged in is also helping along the same lines.